Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we are delighted to welcome you to today's episode of Women Over 70. As you know by now, our signature is featuring women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who are leading lives that illustrate inspiring ways to continue to learn, contribute, and make a difference as we age. The 30-minute conversation with our guest is not scripted or rehearsed, although we will focus on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. So today we're thrilled to shine the spotlight on Dr. Veronica Buckley, whose stories, wisdom, and wit, we know, will prompt all of us to reimagine aging. So Dr. Buckley and uh, Ronnie, for the rest of this episode, Ronnie is 71 years old and with her husband lives in Chicago and as well in a small town in Michigan. So Ronnie has traversed several worlds. In the corporate world, she has over 25 years of experience as HR director and director of administration in financial services and law firms. But adult learning and development clearly is Ronnie's passion. Perhaps it's a calling, and she's going to tell us more about that. And she's going to talk with us about her life as a volunteer. When I talked with Ronnie recently, she said, I define myself first and foremost as a volunteer. So some of the themes we're going to explore with Ronnie is her life as a volunteer and why that matters to her, what she's learned about women living vibrantly from her research, from the remarkable women in her extended family, and from the women in the Transition Network, and other perspectives, of course, that that will emerge during our conversation. So welcome, Ronnie, to our podcast, Women Over 70, and thank you for helping all of us reimagine aging. Well, thank you for the invitation. You know, we'd like to start with having you talk about your life as a volunteer, how you got into it, what you're, what you're involved in, why it matters to you. Okay. It's interesting. My, my life as a volunteer actually started when I was a teenager. Um, and, and it started because I w- was in a parish and did some outreach to a Catholic parish that did not have a school and was preparing children with religious instruction. And it was very, very rewarding. Um, I really uh, enjoyed helping others and then became, you know, it rolled into Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, school boards and the like. Um, And I have just, um, through my entire life, um, gotten a whole lot back from myself by reaching out to others um, in terms of, not only helping other people, but really enriching myself and my own perspective. I think volunteerism for me, especially with those who are are marginalized, has given me a broader perspective and helped me develop stronger empathy um, as a result of those people I've been privileged to serve. Now, Ronnie, I know that you've been involved in for quite a while and in various ways with a Chicago-based homeless shelter. Can you talk about how you got involved in that and and what you've been doing? Yes, many years ago in the late 1990s, uh, when I first moved to Chicago, I actually took a course at DePaul University called Spirituality and Homelessness. And as a requirement of the course, 
I had to do 20 hours of service learning at a homeless shelter. And the homeless shelter we were affiliated with at the time is the one that I'm still affiliated with. Um, at that time, the shelter was relatively new and um, was in need of some human resources policies. And I was asked if I would help them develop those initial policies. And so I did. Uh, and one thing led to another, and I ultimately was invited to be a member of their board of directors uh, and had a remarkable and continue to have a remarkable opportunity to interact with homeless people. I have learned an enormous amount from them. The sh particular shelter uh, that I'm involved with is called The Boulevard, and it is the only shelter of its kind in the state of Illinois in that it, its mission is to serve homeless men and women who are being released from the hospital. So individuals who are no longer ill enough to be in the hospital but would be otherwise returned to the street, which in and of itself is tragic. Um, and the way the program works is people come to us and we call, refer to it as complete their medical recovery and are invited to stay with us um, until we find them housing. It's a small facility, 64 beds. Most people who meet our criteria finish their medical recovery in about 60 days, but it often takes us six months or more to find them housing because of the shortage. As a result, we turn away two people for every one person that we serve. But interestingly, we're having this conversation today because this evening we will be celebrating 9,500 people who we served over the past 25 years. So oh, that's uh, remarkable. Wow. When you say it's hard to place them in housing, is that because there's a shortage? Is that because of... Uh, there's not enough affordable housing? Thank you, Gail. The answer is both. Um, most of the people who come to us are uh, on fixed income, disability income. Many, many of these individuals are veterans, which in and of itself is very tragic. Um, so the combination of that and unavailable housing, you know, for, that is um, available at least economically to these individuals is the difficulty. There is a significant shortage of housing for people in these sorts of situations in Chicago. So it takes a very, very long time to find placement. Wow. You know, Ronnie, I, when we had a, a brief conversation uh, just recently, you talked a little bit about how working with the homeless shelter and, and being in direct relationship with people who are homeless, that you've, you, some of your assumptions and, and notions about who the homeless people are has, has really shifted. And could you talk a little bit about that? Um, yes, I can. Um, it, it's really interesting. And in that, with respect to that, um, number one, I try to remind myself to refer to these individuals as people who are homeless as opposed to homeless people. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and that, that's not a correction, Catherine. That's just me saying, you know, I have to remember that mm -hmm. because people should not be defined by their housing situation. Um, but what I have learned over the years is that you know, and what I should have intellectually known anyway, someone doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I think I will go and live on Lower Wacker Drive, right? That doesn't happen. So there are, often, there are always some sort of extenuating circumstances. And what I've learned over the years is that even when a person may have a substance abuse problem, the problem happened, the problem that started their homelessness was long before the substance abuse. Often these individuals were abused children, neglected children, children who had learning disabilities and inappropriate education and so on. And the problem started way early. In addition, it, one of the threads is lack of self-esteem. Mm. Um, that no one 
helped these people, these individuals feel that they had any worth at all. Um, and so that their expectations of themselves because of the situations in their lives are such that their expectations are quite low. Um, I was talking just recently, actually this morning, about one of the first persons who I met at the shelter was a woman who was a registered nurse, a private duty nurse, who was self-employed, but she became ill. And when she became ill, she could no longer afford her insurance premiums. And then she developed breast cancer. And she had to pay for her hospital bills with cash. And she ended up on the street. But this is a person educated, employed, responsible, paying insurance premiums, and came to a place that one would never have expected. So I've learned over the years that it is not what you think. It is not what I used to think, that you know these are people who just can't get it together. That's not the case at all. I've come to know people who were sexually abused as toddlers and repeatedly sexually abused through their childhoods, which put them on a trajectory of a life of loss because they started with a childhood that was stolen. Mm. I always say, there but for the grace of God go I. Without a doubt, without a doubt. One of the things that I've loved so much about being involved with this magical place is it has so broadened my perspective. It has helped me develop greater empathy. It has helped me, you know, work much harder at putting, easier to put judgment aside, you know, and, and to know that I do not know your story. I don't know anyone's story. Um, and, and as I have come to know some of these remarkable people who we have served over the years, I've learned that they are just like me. You know, Ronnie, I, I know you through the School for New Learning at DePaul, where we both have worked for a long time. And you are legendary in terms of your compassion and caring and let's get it done uh, attitude that you bring to your work with the adult learners our adult learners who also have remarkable, incredible, sometimes gut-wrenching life stories. And can you just tell us a little bit about that work? Well, you know, it's funny. I just feel a, a great deal of self-fulfillment in helping um, uh, or witnessing people reach their goals, whatever that may be. And, and part of that is probably my own situation as well. You know, I, I, I grew up... Um, uh, from the time I was nine, motherless and, and drifted and was, was lost for a long time. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was. I, I didn't think I knew how to be a girl because I had a dad and a brother, and so I didn't have a female role model. And, and um, it was in my later teens that some of my aunts really, really, um, I developed very strong relationships with some of my aunts who sort of nurtured me and helped me to find myself. Um, and I think... Um, I have appreciated that and realized that so often um, one success in life, and I'm not talking about material success, success in terms of contentment, um, having a life that is, has some meaning, has a whole lot to do with feeling worthy that you can have that life. Someone telling you, helping you believe that you have the capability to reach whatever those goals are. And I was blessed to have that in these aunts who kind of rescued me when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Um, up until that time, and people who know me now would have a hard time believing this, I was kind of lost. I didn't know who I was, and I didn't know what I was, and I didn't know if I had any view or anything to offer. Um, but when someone believed in me and, and communicated that they believed in me, my life began to change. So for me, it's, it was sort of you know paying it forward 
whether it's with those at the homeless shelter or whether it's with other adult students to see somebody have that twinkle in their eye because you say, I know you can do it. Mm -hmm. It's a remarkable thing because most of us have it, but we don't claim it. And, and when someone gives us permission to claim it, especially when it's someone who's not a family member, not a loved one, just so an objective outsider, it can be life-changing, absolutely life-changing. When I did my dissertation years ago, I remember saying to my chair, if I ever finish this, and she said, no, when you finish it. And as soon as she said that, I knew I could do it. And Ronnie, why did you uh, pursue a doctorate? At what age did you start that? About 50. <laughs> About 50? <laughs> yes. Um, what happened was I really loved going to school. I loved it. And so when I finished my master's degree, I was like, oh, is this over? I don't want it to be over. I really love it. I, you know, and I was studying adult development and adult education and, you know, and how we change during our lifetime and how learning never has to end and how enriched a life can be as a result. And I just didn't want to let go of it. And I thought, I'm going to take this further. And actually, Warren Scheidemann, um, who was at DePaul at the time, said to me, you need to do this. You need to do this. And I really had a passion for the topic. So as I mentioned to you in our earlier conversation, Catherine, doing the doctoral work was a pleasure for me. It, I was hungry for it. I loved it. I loved the women I learned from while I was studying, you know, vibrant aging and, and elderly women who were, as I say, in the game. Um, so it was a wonderful experience for me. Are there any, some highlights from your research that you could share with us? Sure. Um, well, there are there are a number. I had specific criteria uh, for the women that I was uh, going to work with, and there were just five over the course of about three years. And so I was interested in women who were over 70 and who, in spite of losses, be they physical, emotional, or economic, were still active and engaged in life. Um, and I chose to call these women vibrant. Um, and so what I wanted to do was dig a little bit um, and try to figure out what was it about these women that made them that way? Why didn't they shut down when they had serious illness or their children died or they were widowed or had economic hardship? Um, I was fascinating, fascinated by that. And though it was five different women, they ranged um, from 70 years old to, to at the time about 85. Um, they were... Um, uh, diverse in terms of race, um, religion, and ec uh, economic standing. Mm -hmm. and, and what I found with most of these women, I didn't know it beforehand, was they kept reinventing themselves. So they never, they never stopped. And you know, what's interesting, many years ago, and I don't know if you know a man named Alex Brayman, Catherine, but Alex Brayman graduated from college at DePaul School for New Learning when he was about 82 years old. And I had the pleasure to meet him, and I, I worked with him on some committees years ago. And I remember saying something, asking him a question. I will never forget what he said. And I asked him, Alex, why at 82? Why at 82 are you graduating? And he said, because, Ronnie, when you stop, you stop. <laughs> and I, I, I just, it was a gift. I mean, when Alex said that to me, it was absolutely a gift. And, and the women with whom I worked were they really supported that, you know, what Alex said, um, because they kept growing, they kept changing, they kept um, giving back, and they all had a purpose. And what one of the themes that came out of this was that they said, I, each of them in their own way said, 
I really don't care if anyone knows what I have done or what I do, but it matters to me to know that I have done something meaningful with my life. Um, and so whether that is, you know, teaching or being a psychologist or doing installation art that has a theme of social justice, which was one of the, one of the subjects of uh, research subjects was involved with, that's what it was. Each one of them wanted to know that when they closed their eyes for the last time, they could say, it would have been different had I not been here. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Even if it was something small. They, and they did not care who knew it except themselves. That is really wonderful. You know, I'm, I want to go back to your aunts because you, they influenced you at a time when you were without a female role models, apparently, without that kind of nurturing that comes, we hope, from a, a mother. And I remember you saying at one point, they broke the mold. In they, some ways, they did. Um, I come from um, an immigrant family, Italian immigrants from uh, uh, Sorrento. My father came from a very large family. He was born in the United States, but most of his siblings were not. And uh, uh, in this large group of children, um, there were only three boys. And I don't think any of us really knows for sure how many girls there were, because some died in Italy and whatever. We know at least a dozen children. Um, but I had uh, the pleasure of and the gift of. Uh, at least a half dozen aunts who were here uh, in the United States. And it's interesting because my mother's death when I was a child was a, a tremendous loss, but I have reflected as an adult that had she lived, I might not have gotten what I did from these remarkable aunts. Um, so it, it's, it, it's a very, it's sort of paradoxical, but they were women who were immigrants. Um, they were hardworking. They were always changing. They were always growing. They were open. They were accepting of different social more, uh, norms. You know, as, as things changed, they became at 80 gay rights activists, pro-life, pro, they were, I'm sorry, they were pro-choice. They, and these were, you know, little Italian ladies who looked like little Italian ladies. You think of that stereotypical <laughs> little Italian lady, but they, they were, they read, they were hungry. Um, they were open. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned to you, Catherine, supposed to get a real kick out of this, that my Aunt Josie, when she was in her 80s, and I was having a hysterectomy in my late 40s, calls me to tell me not to worry about my sex drive. <laughs> <laughs> Did they live near you, Ronnie? Um, well, I lived in New York City. Um, you know, I'm from New York City. And so, yes, they didn't live too far away. But, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see them frequent, frequently, but certainly with regularity. And one in particular, I talked to almost weekly. And she used to refer to herself as my mother on earth. And um, she was a tremendous influence. And, and she would put me into check because I'd be complaining about somebody and she'd say, Veronica, you do not like people for who they are. You like them in spite of their shortcomings because you are far from perfect. Oh. <laughs> and she, she was remarkable. I mean, she was remarkable. And, and she, she was a survivor because she had some real challenges in her own life, but she just persevered. And I so admired her. But I admired all of them. I mean, they, they lived independently. Um, only Of the whole bunch of them, only one ever went to a nursing home, and it was when she was 96. 
They, they lived on their own. They took care of their own homes. They called me on my birthday and sang happy birthday until the end of their lives. And they were funny too. They were zany. I mean, they, because they were, they defied what the stereotype was. Okay. And so I was very inspired by them. Um, and if, if I were to have a few of my female cousins here with me now, they would tell you very much the same thing, that they were an extraordinary group of women, extraordinary. They were flexible. They took life as it came. They did not complain, you know, and I can remember my, my dad, um, when my dad died, there was only one of them left. And, and she was a little bit older than my father. And I was very worried about calling her and letting her know that her last sibling had died. Mm -hmm. and, and she was in her 80s at the time. And, you know, I, I summed up all my courage to call her. And my dad had suffered with Parkinson's disease. And when I got her on the phone, her name was um, Antoinette. I called her Antoni. And I said, you know, daddy died this morning. And she said, oh, Ronnie, thank goodness he's at peace now. <laughs> and and so you know she was very able to let him go because she so appreciated what he had gone through so um i i just i can't tell you how much i admired them and my husband adored them i they just were a unique i'll show you a picture catherine sometime of, okay. of, they were just remarkable and strong and funny and energetic and open and um and the other thing is they were forgiving they never held a grudge, you know, oh, well, the oldest one did. She was a little bit of a character, but by and large, they didn't. They, they were great role models. And I think that all of my cousins think of them as, as people we aspire to, to emulate. Um, I was going to say, Ronnie, that I think you've described yourself. Oh, I don't know about that, but there are back to I'll tell you one quick story about, and the, the men were very special too. Very quick aside, my uncle Mike, who was the eldest of the three brothers, um, well, he lived to be in his 90s, and his daughter took him to a series of doctors one day. And um, when he, she took him home and he was getting out of the car, she said, he looked at her and said, Carol, I don't know how to thank you for all that you do for me. I think I'm just going to have to love you a little bit more. Oh, <laughs> that's special. Yeah. And that's what they yeah. were like. I mean, that's just what they were like. I, it's hard to explain. They were amazing. I, I, I really kind of hate to move to another topic, but in the interest of time, I do want to have uh, give you an opportunity to talk about the transition network for women over fifty, and what is that about, and and why does that matter to you? Okay. So the, the Transition Network is a nonprofit, national nonprofit for women over 50 that offers educational, social, and volunteer opportunities to its membership. Um, and there are chapters in many cities in the country, and there is a chapter here in Chicago. The chapter in Chicago existed for quite some time and was suburban-focused. And about two and a half years ago, I, along with a few other women, were contacted as to whether or not we could develop it and, and garner more people in the downtown area um, to be participants. So this sort of, you know, fed my research, you know, sort of an extrapolation of what I'm interested in. Um, and I thought, well, why not? And originally, I was a little concerned because it seemed as though the organization wanted to be all things to all women, and I wasn't sure it could do that, you know, so it wanted to offer so many things. But um, I, along with five other women, formed a steering committee and we thought, let's see what happens. And it has turned out to be an extraordinary experience because 
women, um, we've gone from, you know, about 20 members when we first started this to less count was 102. And it's, it's in a very short amount of time. And what we're finding is, number one, the value of community and the value of relationship among women as they get older. Um, and also sort of sharing that space, that sort of I get it space, you know, I've been there. And our membership goes, you know, from 50 to, you know, the end of life could be 100, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and so we learn from one another within the group, um, but the opportunities have been endless. Um, so in addition to, you know, um, volunteer opportunities, which of course, you know, I love so much, um, we, we have had a number of chapter-wide um, offerings about the value of relationship, um, about how to deal with subjects such as ageism and what we think about ageism and how each of us may contribute to the problem of ageism to raise our own awareness, right? Um, yeah. We've talked about, you know, reinvention. We've talked about career, you know, career. We've just started something recently, which I'm really enjoying called Table Topics, which is um, a table topics. There are actually boxes of cards you can buy that ask provoking questions. And you don't know what's going to come out of the box, but you bring a group of people together. And these are sort of soul searching questions that give you a chance to dig a little bit and, and to get into some substantive conversation. And we found that to be very rich and very, very rewarding for our membership. Um, and Catherine and I recently uh, participated in a memoir writing workshop, which was pretty extraordinary in terms of sort of, you know, how do you start distilling and, and drilling down to those things in your life that have been important or, you know, pivotal to you in some way? Right. You know, I, I joined the Transition Network recently. I found out about it from you, Ronnie, and in part because uh, I'm um, leaving my full-time employment, retiring from DePaul, University, and I've been kind of concerned about where my network of my family, of friends and colleagues, and, you know, who will I connect with? And I think the Transition Network is a wonderful avenue for that, and I've enjoyed the, the, the brief encounters I've had, and I look forward to doing more. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You know, it's interesting. The, the organization was um, started in New York City my hometown, uh, about 20 years ago. And the New York chapter, I believe, has about 900 women in it. Um, it's huge. And, and women are doing all kinds of interesting work, having all sorts of interesting experiences, enjoying the arts together, and also have something called um, the Caring Collaborative, which is as women get older and have some needs, be they medical needs, um, companionship needs, uh, women group by zip code and support one another, take each other to doctor's visits, do the grocery shopping, all sorts of things that helps individuals maintain independence. So that's very, very interesting as well. And the chapters in the Transition Network collaborate with each other and share programs and ideas for programming that women are responding to so that, you know, we get stronger and we hope smarter um, all the time and keep coming up with things that are meaningful to the membership. Oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, we'll make sure that the people, our, our listeners know how to connect with, with this great resource. Ronnie, is there anything else that you would like to, to say, to share with us about aging, about as you look to the future, what do you see for yourself? Uh, anything that keeps you up at night? I, I, you know, we, it's so funny you should ask that because I was talking about this the other day and I, I was saying, at least for me, and I don't know, maybe, you know, I, I have a little Pollyanna streak in me. 
I might. Um, but I tend to be pretty much sort of present and um, trying to make the most of whatever it is like right now mm -hmm. um, because I don't know what's coming. Um, and so what I have, you know, it said, you know, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery business. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, a lot of it is about being present and, and making the most of whatever, wherever you are. And, and also um, trying to do your best to be a half full person rather than a half empty person all the time. Um, you know, uh, I believe, I've always believed this, and this may go back to the loss of my mother as a child, that um, in every loss, there is a lesson. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you may not find that lesson when you experience the loss because the loss may be quite painful. But in retrospect, there is an opportunity for growth from every loss, from every deficit in your life, if you are willing to look for it. And if you are, and you can wrap your heart, your head around it and your heart around it, it really motivates you to keep going. You don't yes. shut down. You do not shut down. Mm -hmm. Great, Ronnie. Very, very enlightening and um, makes me want to look into the Transition Network and see what that's all about. And, you know, it's, it's, um, I think that, that it's, Today, there are lots of new concepts happening, intergenerational uh, mentoring programs and, and uh, transition networks in Villages Chicago and all of those that are helping people find ways to not have to be isolated as they grow older. And so this, this has been very interesting for me, for sure. Well, well, thank you both so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Ronnie, and thank you for, for being so um, revealing about your experience and what you ways that, that you continue to learn and grow and develop yourself. Well, yeah. thank we, you. I appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate you, and thank you again. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.